I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Super 8. I've got nothing against your friends. I like your friends. Now things have obviously changed for us. I have to help Charles finish his movie. Be good for you to spend some time with kids who don't run around with cameras and monster makeup. Uh, could you close your eyes, please? Yeah. And action! An eastbound freighter derailed what the cargo was on that freighter. We don't know. We can't tell anyone. I know. I understand you have concerns about our cargo. Colonel, there isn't anything else that I should know, is there? I can assure you the answer is no. We've gotten calls from people who found local dogs, but the calls coming in aren't local. Lucy! It's like they all just ran away. I've got property damage. I've got theft. I've got nine people missing now. Clearly, things happening around here that I can't explain. We have to find this thing. I don't feel good about this. Go! I saw it. No one believes me. I believe you. What the hell? Almost exactly a year ago, at the very beginning of 2020, when the uninfected world lay before us and everywhere people's plans for the future lay in organisers still undeleted, Sharon and I released our show on Jaws with Chris Chipman, kicking off the Steven Spielberg season, which gave us focus throughout the excruciating span of months and helped stave off the anxiety we were feeling, even if only for a little while. We journeyed from a conflicted shark hunt to alien encounters with families broken and healed, through the chronicles of a rugged archaeologist tracing his way from fortune and glory to an unexpected family, the loss of childhood innocence, Peter Pan growing up, the wonder and danger of dinosaurs, the horrors of war, the inhumanity of slavery, the existentially disturbing implications of artificial intelligence, pre-crime and alien invasion, a charming lost thief and his many father figures, another beloved treasure hunter and his snowy white dog, a gentle giant haunted by worry yet yearning to give children amazing dreams, and what happens when Second Life has cyber sex with Now That's What I Call the 80s. We await his remake of West Side Story and everything else that Stephen might come up with after that. But to provide something of a contextual epilogue, we go all the way back to the beginning with Super 8. A movie produced by Spielberg in 2011 and one that absolutely retains the spirit of his work, especially in the late 70s, early 80s. 
and it is directed by a man who has not only been inspired by the work of Steven Spielberg, but has actually connected with the man himself since the early days. And the fact that Abrams' last film, The Rise of Skywalker, was so reviled by so many, though also enjoyed by many others, rather like Ready Player One. I feel like going back to Super 8, which many overlooked, many haven't seen, many dismissed, and many used as another reason to cry foul on this remarkably disliked creator, just felt oddly appropriate. And while it has several issues with tone, structure, and focus, and that mystery box component of his, which we will go into, overall Super 8 is a joy to me. It never fails to hit me straight in the heart, and this time watching it with a close eye on Spielberg's sensibilities made it the best screening yet. And I saw this originally in IMAX. The train crash was so intense and so immense back then in 2011 that I started having traumatic flashbacks to a car accident that Sharon and I were in a few years before. But it was the rest of the movie, and specifically the thread of dealing with grief, that just spoke directly to me. It's Abrams' third film, following Mission Impossible 3 and Star Trek, and he handles proceedings with confidence and familiarity after a decade spent making some of the most popular TV. This is clearly Abrams' most personal story. All the rest are Paramount and Disney saying, please reboot our ailing franchises, make them amazing and bright and bring in a billion dollars worth of appreciative audiences. And he did, in most cases. But Jeffrey Jacob Abrams, and hands up who knew that that's what his name actually was, I didn't, was born in New York City, 1966, 20 years after Steve was in Cincinnati, Ohio. A medium place. <laughs> JJ grew up a nerd who loved movies like Jaws and Close Encounters and made Super 8 films with his friends in the late 70s. So did the cinematographer for this film, Larry Fong. So did its producer, Brian Burke. So did its composer, Michael Giacchino. So did Matt Reeves, director of Abrams Project, produced by Burke, Cloverfield, and director of the second two Planet of the Apes movies scored by Giacchino. These guys made little effects pictures, horrors, sci-fis and dramas. They made the lowest budget magic tricks they could. They expressed themselves through film the way Steve had at their age and was continuing to do as he ascended to the key link in the chain of influence. But that wasn't all. Like Charles and his buddies in this film are depicted as doing, they entered their films into competitions and film festivals. And when one Steven Spielberg read a New York Times article in 1981 about these beardless wonders, he recruited JJ and Matt to repair and restore Steve's own teenage 8mm films for the princely sum of $300. This is the alchemy of cinema. This is the beginnings of amazing careers. This is the connective Kodak film which binds together two creative generations who in turn have inspired kids everywhere to make their own experimental movies in high 8 tape, on digital video and eventually on their phones. Super 8 is a loving salute to that principle wrapped around an alien event and a moving family drama. And as I say this, it's snowing, folks. 
It's noteworthy that this film predates Stranger Things by five years, with the similar mix of intrepid kids versus shady government science types plus all manner of giant creature scares in a late 70s or in this case mid 80s setting. But here's the kicker. The Duffer Brothers were born in 1984, four years after me, a full 18 years after Abrams. What they're doing is recalling with intense fondness the entertainment they grew up with in the 90s, which depicted an 80s that was already gone. As much a retelling of Stephen King's It as the 2017 adaptation time displaced from the late 50s to the late 80s, JJ, Brian, Larry and Michael aren't looking back on the movies that told them what that period was like and what kids did. They were there. They were those kids. And they were kids Spielberg personally trusted at the time with his own precious memories. He saw enough of himself in their art, inspired by his own, that he picked them for a repair job on irreplaceable yet damaged personal artifacts. And they flipping repaired them. That, my friends, makes this film that three decades later Stephen enthusiastically produced and oversaw worthy of a second appraisal. Set in the fictional Lillian, Ohio in 1979, shot in the real-life town of Weirton, West Virginia, back then in the 70s, the steel mill in real life, which you can see in the background, was thriving and employed thousands of the townspeople. But a lot changed in American industry over the next few decades, and by the time of filming, that number had dwindled greatly. Nonetheless, the townspeople were largely extremely excited that their home was being used for an authentic backdrop, and many of the extras actually lived there. It's oddly similar to the episode of The Simpsons' Radioactive Man, the goggles, they do nothing, which makes a brief appearance of Dan Castellaneta some kind of meta-in-joke. JJ came up with the first shot long before this film began development. He saw a factory accident board with 784 days since its last incident. Slowly having that number changed to one. It's a sad and violent alteration of circumstances when you consider that that's more than two years in a steel mill that employs thousands. This gives us some context for the young boy that we then meet, Joe Lamb, son of Elizabeth, the lady we do not see, whose life was just abruptly ended. A boy sits on a swing, alone in the snow, holding a silver locket. As Michael Giacchino plays a subtle, quiet, sensitive, heartbreaking family theme, which will be reprised at key moments in the film before us. Meanwhile, everyone attending the buffet of the funeral wake looks out of the window and worries about him, including his friends. It's pieces of visual storytelling like this that Abrams performs really well. They are some of the reasons that I adore his work. He is by no means a deeply complex creator. He moves in broad strokes, but with a light touch when it's needed, and I appreciate that tactful approach. He knows when to turn it on, and he knows when to hold it in. There are a few stories going on here. Joe's friend Charles, who is JJ's self-insert avatar, 
is trying to make a gruesome mini-zombie movie to enter into a film festival. Joe is helping with makeup and effects and occasionally writing and acting, and their friends Carrie, Martin and Preston are assisting with all the awkward acting abilities one would expect from tween kids hopped up on Twizzlers and Charleston Chew. Joe's father, meanwhile, played by Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights, is Jackson, the local deputy, and he's having extreme difficulty coping with the change of circumstances and indescribable loss he's experiencing. A girl named Alice Daynard is recruited to act in Charles's film and seems to have very strong mixed feelings about Joe, as well as a complicated and strained relationship with her deeply depressed father, Lewis. And in the middle of filming one of the first scenes, the kids are witness to an alarming and explosive train crash which sets in motion the instigating sci-fi thread of this film. An alien escapes the train and, unseen by all, burrows under the town, frequently snatching humans off the darkened streets and causing a panic as the military move in to find and capture it. The kids, as witnesses, are embroiled in all of this and scoot around on bikes and occasionally assisted by a deeply stoned teenage dude who has the hots for Charles's sister. But for me, while the alien stuff is impressively captured at times, the sudden snatching away and damseling of Alice is irritating and absolutely everything about Charles's film is hilarious and familiar to an aspiring filmmaker in my younger days and, let's face it, still now with my decidedly cinematic audio dramas where I get to be director, writer, actor, editor, producer. This film began as basically a mashup between two scripts and you can see where the separation lies, but... There is a cohesion. What really matters to me about Super 8, what maintains over every screening, is the sharp emotional sense of grief that grips Joe Lamb. His attempts to marshal it on the outside are actually fairly successful. He is able to interact with his friends without too much conflict, falling back on his own placid, understated approach. He doesn't have to contend with school since they've just broken up. It's almost too easy to hide how deeply he's hurting. JJ's intentions were that Joe's inner turmoil would be reflected by the seemingly destructive rage of the alien creature. But Joe doesn't exhibit that anger on the surface, aside from a few very key clashes with several of those close to him. He's not ruled by his anger, so this parallel was most likely not conveyed strongly enough to make the two obvious threads of the story tie together for a lot of audiences. Joe is stuck in place. He can't move on and it hurts him all over again every time he thinks about Elizabeth, but in a bittersweet, compulsive, masochistic fashion, poring over old Super 8 footage of her. And the real story we have at play here is how much that hurt and that freezing in place affects far more people than just Joe. And as the film ends in seemingly simplistic fashion, many things have occurred unspoken between these interconnected people. So let's go from moment to moment and examine what's going on there. We can start in Joe's room, which seems to be absurdly and unrealistically bereft of the amount of Star Wars paraphernalia that a 14-year-old boy in Ohio would have piled up in 1979. Sorry for hogging the mic for so long. That's okay. Um, just a, an observation on the Star Wars element. I did wonder, after you, because you bring this up every time we watch the film, 
Um, Why isn't there more given, Star Wars? This is ludicrous. There's like the, one, there's two little posters hmm. and one is Vader's TIE fighter hanging from, hanging the, from a, the ceiling a that you see once. But this is, this is the thing. If we look at the stuff that Joe is into, one of the reasons that he's been drafted in by Charles to do makeup and special effects and, and things of that nature is he is model obsessed. He likes to, to make small things. He loves to paint. He likes classical monster movies like Frankenstein and Creature from the Black Lagoon for the makeup. Um, he's very creative in terms of that kind of small replicas of, of things um, going on in the great wide world, which is, is brilliant to translate into making small films. I wonder if the Star Wars toys that were available at the time were just not creative enough for him. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the Kenner made a whole bunch of like TIE Fighters and um, Millennium Falcon and uh, X-Wing Wing and the Land Speeder were all available at this point. Mm. Um, you could add the caveat that Joe's quite a mature kid and it's almost like Star Wars was for younger kids. But I know that Star Wars was ador- adored by teenagers as well. Mm. But at the same time, you know, it's a Paramount movie. They, uh, it, it, you know, it may be Spielberg and uh, they couldn't really slather it mm. in the amount of uh, Star Wars related stuff. And it almost would have distracted from the fact that he is clearly going after evoking two Spielberg films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. Mm. And E.T. hadn't occurred yet, but Close Encounters had in 77, same year as Star Wars. Mm. Yeah. But I think of all of the kids, Charles And those are more the... domestic uh, alien scenarios yeah. rather than space fantasy. Yeah. Charles, I think, is the one of them that's probably more likely to have been into Star Wars mm. at that age. And his basement room is a mess. If he's got Star <laughs> Wars stuff in there, nobody would know. <laughs> Charles, as I said, is the J.J. Abrams self-insert character, and Abrams' favourite movies are Jaws, Star Wars, The Philadelphia Story, Tootsie, and Rear Window. A hell of a lineup. I really like Charles. I mean, as as, as uh, time goes on, the, it starts off like he seems quite pushy when you first meet him, but there's the there's a there's that zeal of a director who kind of like um, sort of grabs everyone and runs mm. through the film all yeah. at once. And, there, and, there is and, a certain drive that one has to have to corral 12-year-olds who haven't committed to this as a career strand yet. And aren't being paid. Yes. It's even exactly. harder when they're 17 or 19 or 20. Or, and have loads of other stuff to take up their, yeah. uh, their time. And don't turn up for the last day of shooting, so we have to change their character. One thing... <laughs> What's wrong with his face? It seems very specific and it makes me feel like that has happened to you. (laughs) Oh, the terrible facial problems that happened to this character that could only be shown from behind wearing a hoodie because this, we we kept phoning. It was a completely different This couldn't happen in the age of mobile phones, could it? Hashtag where are you, you bastard. Anyway. (laughs) One thing that did occur to me this time in observing uh, Joe's reaction to the grief he's experiencing and how he expresses it and the fact that largely he doesn't is that that is a lot to do with opportunity and his if you if you compare his creative expression to Charles Charles makes films 
<clears throat> and while I'm not saying for even a second that he is trying to uh, exorcise any personal demons with his zombie flick. His grandma he, might have been a zombie. If, <laughs> if he had anything that he needed to express, he would have a format that is a lot more given to, uh, to clarifying internal conflict than, say, painting model trains, yeah. which is a much more uh, kinesthetic expression of, of your creativity, but it doesn't necessarily give you an easy way to voice what's going on inside. And it did make me think of another young boy in a film who is about his age and is going through something fairly similar, although there is the, the absence of the, the kind of trauma of an, an accident. And that is... Um, I can't think of his name, the name of the character, but the boy in Love Actually, mm. who has... I thought of him as well, just in terms of, I just want to get on with my life and yeah, like, throw myself them, into drumming. Both of them have got this... I like this girl, I liked her before... Exactly, yeah, both of them have died. got this thing going on that like they had a life that was progressing and a teenagehood that was approaching, and that was happening before, and it still is. Nothing's happened to stop that. But the difference is that Simon, isn't it? Let's say yes. Let's call him Simon. Simon has a father figure who is very aware of Simon's pain and grief. And while he may do it in a sort of all thumbs way occasionally, gives him opportunities to talk about how he's feeling to... Um, Sam. Sam, thank you to uh, express what he's going through to the point where he comes to the conclusion on his own that there are times that he actually doesn't need that because he feels okay. Joe never has that. And when he tries to express his grief, his dad shuts him down because he can't cope with his own. He can't process his own. And so he certainly hasn't got the space for Joe to process his. Mm. The first talk between Jackson, uh, who's uh, Joe's father, it follows... Um Joe's been hanging around Charles's house. It's really sweet how the family there are like, there's always a place for you here, Joe. They're, they're like, they're going out of their way to... And it's been months now because it was it was very specifically snowing before and it's summer here. Mm. It's been half a year since this happened. Well, they have a title card four months later. There you go. A, quarter, a third of a year. Mm. That, that sense of being welcomed into this bulging family because you got Charles, then he's got his two twins, his older sister who's like, this is so unfair that we can't, I can't go to Wendy's. And um, then there's the mother and the father. It's, it's like, it's it's this bustling house. And for them to just say, you know, there's, there's you know, a place for you here, Joe. And you then contrast that with him going back to this quiet, mostly empty house where his father has been crying and doesn't want Joe to see. And it's like, you know, just, just like, you know, just... And they go out to eat and uh, have a quiet meal together. And his father hands him uh, a flyer for baseball camp and says, you know, this is this will be good for you. And the original scene was apparently, the audiences were like, I hate the father immediately because it seemed like he was just shoving his son away. And they reshot it and, and de deliberately made Chandler's performance more brittle, more like, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And they don't have it out here, but it's just that all of this under-the-surface stuff. I love how Abrams does this kind of conversation. It's a six-week program. Hands-on training with college coaches. You'd like it. I know I did. I thought I was going to have the summer for myself. Things have obviously changed for us. 
be good for you to spend some time with kids who don't run around with cameras and monster makeup. I have to help Charles finish his movie. I've got nothing against your friends. I like your friends. Except for Carrie, you can't seem to stop lighting things on fire. You'd like it there. It's what we both need. Uh, again, he, he's fairly broad in, in how he approaches these things. It's like, it's, it's not massively multi-layered, but there is what is said and there is what is not said, and he's really good at that. Yeah. And, very specifically, he picks actors who are fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like, he, the casting on Abrams' movies is superb, and I've watched him talk to them. It's the opposite of Kubrick. He relates to them. He talks, you know, emphatically and sort of talks about how they're feeling and how the person they're speaking to is feeling, just so he can sort of connect them with him, and everything's so clear to them. And he, it, like I say, it may only be two layers, but he's making it abundantly clear to his actors who just seem to knock it out of the park. Mm -hmm with the way that and, and that he, he sort of just captures that unspoken side of things. Mm. And he's so generous as a director because he does nothing but praise them. And he's absolutely right because he only seems to hire really fantastic actors who just seem to naturally eat, just drop into this put these performances. And they're always so vibrant. That's why things like the Star Trek and um, The Force Awakens just have this energy of all of these people assembling and just popping on screen. They have this enthusiasm for it. And it just seems to, like he's obviously, you know, similar to Spielberg himself, he's really good at working with kids and, and young people. And so, um, yeah, he can, he can get that level of enthusiasm out of them. Mm. And he, he's, he's never gonna be someone who like sort of keeps them at arm's length and doesn't really want to involve them too much. So like, again, like the opposite of Kubrick, and I'm not saying Kubrick's bad, but like say the, the, like, the way he handled the kid who played Danny in The Shining was to pretty much obfuscate the events of the film from the child and only give him the bare essentials for what this tiny boy who didn't understand what was going on needed to know Which... to perform those, those scenes. Oh, Which is, it... is not what happened during, say, Doctor Sleep. No, and I, I was about to bring up Kubrick myself. The... To be fair with the, the incident, the incident, with the situation with The Shining, he was such a young actor, mm. it would have been very difficult to filter it in a way especially that, in that wouldn't days, have yeah. upset him. And he was gentle but, with him, which is yes, he was. commendable, but especially I, considering what he did to Shelley Long. <laughs> I feel like the essential difference between the way Kubrick handles his actors generally, and in particular when he's working with somebody young or somebody that he doesn't perceive he has an equal relationship, and this is where the, the Shelley Long thing would come He in. made Scatman Crothers cry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and how we see J.J. Abrams working with his younger actors in the behind-the-scenes stuff is the there's an element of trust mm. in what Abrams seems to do. And it was particularly obvious when the, the emotional scenes with uh, Elle Fanning were taking place. Mm. But he was willing to stay at arm's length, let the actor get what they could get out of it. And ultimately, mm. what he found was that he got the performance that he hadn't even dared to hope for out of it. Mm. Whereas Kubrick holds everything very, very tightly. Rigidly. He has a very specific idea of what he wants. And he controls 
controls it so much that he ends up with something that has been hammered incredibly flat. To mechanical precision. Yeah. He won't tell you what he does want. He will only tell you that he didn't like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 87 times. And it's, and it's it's a way. It's a method. Oh, it's a way. But These are, he created masterpieces on a technical scale. But effectively, what he seemed to do was to grind his actors down into fine iron shavings mm. and then remould those pieces into exactly what he wanted. That's fine, but then why bother hiring an actor who has an interest in developing a character mm. or bringing their own emotional take to it? That, to me, is is the more... Uh, it's a more enlightening way of seeing a character develop because then it's not just your input as the director, it's what the writer brings to it, what the actor brings to it, it's what the audience takes from it. It's this combination of elements that ends up bringing to something more than the sum of its parts. So Jeffrey is far closer to uh, Steven Spielberg in terms of how he relates mm. to the... Because the, I saw Steve throughout the year when we were watching all this behind-the-scenes stuff. He never does bloody commentaries. He won't let us in on that. Um, oh, interestingly, throughout the Super 8 commentary... Uh, JJ starts by going, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to send uh, Steve... I'm doing Steve's voice here. They're so similar in the way they speak. We're, we're going to send Steve a, uh, a text message asking him a question. And uh, then when he answers us, that will be Steven Spielberg's opinion on a movie in a commentary. So we will finally have the world's first Steven Spielberg commentary. At least we can say he's been part of it. And they waited till about an hour in and we're like, what should we send him? They didn't have a plan for what question to send him. They sent it to him and he never replied because he's Steven fucking Spielberg. <laughs> he's not just going, oh, when, when are we going to get cards from J.J. Abrams? I've got to answer them within the next hour and a half. They were going to email him. And interestingly, they had this plan. They said what they were going to do and then they didn't follow up on it. And it was kind of disappointing at the end because they had no record. They had no result from that. <laughs> What's the question you're going to ask him? Oh, it's inside this box. Do you know the question? That's it. Doesn't matter. It's inside this. Forget it. Uh, so it's it's an annoying thing that he does, and it doesn't usually ruin movies until the the rise of Skywalker. Anyway, <clears throat> not going to bitch and moan about it. That is not going to be my last Jedi. And I don't want to be that kind of person. Um, oh, the other way that he differs from me is... I um, don't want to spoil this, but um, for those who haven't listened to all my stuff, which is the majority of you, um, but the there's a very significant death that happens late in the uh, series of books as they are written now, uh, which I had prepared for for years, knowing this was going to happen. And as I wrote it, I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm killing this character. Um, and then I had to break it to the uh, actress. And eventually um, we got to the actual recording of this scene. And she went through it magnificently. And I was just fucking crying my eyes out. Just so connected to this character. And just it hurt so much to hear her dying. And... JJ mentioned in his uh, commentary that during the scene where Elle Fanning is um, talking about uh, what happened the day that uh, Elizabeth, Joe's mother, died, um, she's crying and just really feeling it. And he's 
12 feet away behind the camera, bouncing from foot to foot and rubbing his hands in joy that he got this performance out of her. And I'm like, fucking hell, Jeffrey, can't you just live in this moment that you and her have created? Uh, I let it in in that case. I'm sure he's been moved in many other ways. So when they meet Alice Daynard almost immediately after the... Uh, um, set to between Joe and his father. It's, she's driving a car. As adults, uh, British people were like, this feels really wrong. In America, you can drive a car at 16, and in certain rural towns, probably get away with driving a car way younger. In some areas, I believe you can get your learner's permit when you're 50. Yeah. As long as it's, it's like, as long as you turn 16 that year or something. And a hell of a lot of cars, I think this one's a stick shift, because it's, uh, it's like a Mustang-looking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh... A hell of a lot of cars, especially now, are just automatics, which makes them a lot easier to drive. In the UK, it's like 18, and you've got to take rigorous friggin' driving tests, which are extremely expensive. Yeah, I don't know if they've changed it. You have to be 17 to get a uh, provisional license, Mm. and then you have to take a theory test before they'll even let you get in a car these days, I believe. Yeah. And then by the time you've taken all your lessons and actually passed the test, you're probably going to be closer to 18. Either way. You, you see someone, a teenager in a car with an L plate on, you think that's a learner trying their goddamn best to be able to get around these dangerous-ass roads. In America, they seem to let you <laughs> behind the wheel when you're a friggin' toddler. Oh, you can drive a tractor when you're 16. There you go. Um... But uh, one of our listeners, Greg, one of our very favourite listeners, uh, mentioned uh, that it was a trope that he's not a fan of, which is a young boy getting the hots for an older girl. Which made me start to prepare something about the fact that when I got together with uh, Sharon for the first time, I was 19 years old and she was 21. So it's age gap lover here, folks. Um, But then I did some checking and... um, Joel Courtney, kid who plays Joe, uh, is now 24 years old because he was born in 1996. Elle Fanning is 22 years old. He's two years older than her! Which is testament to how mature she comes across in this film as a kid who has had to deal with far too much far too early. She seems to, like, I, I always assumed she was, like, six months older than the rest of these kids and maybe somehow in the year above them because of a, a, a slight, because of that uh, span of months. But basically, you know, to them was, like, an older girl. Mm. But So wh- when they filmed that then, he was 14, 15, and she was 12? I was going to say, uh, uh, feasibly, depending on months, like, she could have been 11, he could have been 12, depending on the No, actual... they, did, they did say she was 12 when they hired okay, her. Okay, right, there you go. There you go, then. Uh, yeah, most, most likely. But uh, she begins with this kind of, like, you know, locking eyes with him, and like, he is looking at me, I am driving this car, I shouldn't be driving this car, like, I'm going to get into trouble, and, like, she's paranoid of him. And... Uh, he, he's got this kind of, kind of Aladdin-like, you know, I won't say anything to anyone, do you trust me? And she keeps studying him, and she has this amazing intensity of, like, just something... Like, was it originally that he had asked Alice Daynard, or Charles Charles asked, asked Alice to come go. and play the, the wife. Joel the wasn't wife, sure yeah. that they needed the wife character in the first place, especially since they couldn't find a girl to play her. Yeah. But then Charles came up with Alice as a possibility. Because when your boy's doing stupid movies, 
getting girls to come and play along is difficult. As it turns out later, he kind of likes the uh, uh, presence of Alice in the film so much that he writes a whole bunch of new pages and uh, scenes for, for the wife to feature in. But that's not for nothing, because uh, the... Oh, <laughs> it's a really... Like, I've not seen this anywhere else in any other film. It's actually quite an inspired scene. Uh, Joe first off, starts by doing her hair and makeup and just sort of like getting her, her ready for the scene. They're out in the boondocks shooting on a uh, an old railway siding. And I'm assuming most of you have, have, have now either seen this or not, but I'm still going to talk you through it just to set the scene, especially for those who haven't seen it. Um, but she kind of doesn't look at him as he's doing the makeup because she like she spends the first few encounters trying to work out what he thinks about her and how much he knows about what she's currently feeling. And as it turns out, he doesn't know much of anything regarding her connection to the death of Elizabeth. Mm. He likes her already. That is established because when Charles mm. says he's invited Alice to come and play the part, he's yeah. like, Alice Daynard? <laughs> That's all he says for like the next five minutes. And they do end up clashing uh, over her in a kind of, I saw her first kind of way. I am grateful this is relegated to a single scene because we've seen that done many, many times. It can come off as petulant mm. and both characters could have ended up as dislikable as a result. Ah, um, But there's a... It's used to characterise Charles better because he's kind of, you know, his exact words are, I haven't grown into myself yet. I, I haven't, haven't leaned out I yet. haven't leaned out yet. Like, he's a, he's a kid of big build and it's almost, it's part of his personality is being able to sort of push things forwards as, as opposed to uh, Joe and Kerry, for example, who are quite slight. But he's self-conscious and uh, a little bit, ashamed of his own weight and like you know what girl's going to uh, particularly go for me when you know I'm, you're so pretty effectively mm. there's grappling over control and especially with joe writing new uh, uh, passages that he's kind of losing his grip on his own film which uh, he's been you know pushing forwards but charles comes off quite well by the end doesn't end up like throwing a massive strop and in, and in any way directly endangering everyone as a result of his desperate zeal to get dangerous shots done. He's not Jack Black in King Kong, mm. which, interestingly, Kyle Chandler was also in. He was the, um, the, the model strapping hunter type figure who turned out to be kind of a, a Gaston type, but then actually kind of saved the day a little bit at the end. In King Kong? Yeah. Remember Kyle Chandler in King Kong? I remember Kyle Chandler in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Oh, shit, he was as well. Yeah. Is he, like, playing his own reincarnation or something? I had not tied those two two together. Yeah, see? Huh. He comes swinging in on a rope with a Tommy gun. There he is. There's Jack Black. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that version of King Kong. I was thinking of... Um, Skull Island. Skull Island, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. The scene that is unusual is after connecting these two kids... Alice then performs for this dumb little zombie film with... I mentioned the the awkwardness of the acting, and it really is like Max Fisher players. You know, maybe we'll meet each other someday when the killing stops. 
straight out of Rushmore, which is wonderful and totally accurate. That's how kids act. They aren't feeling the lines. They're just saying what they're supposed to and kind of remembering how people on screen and on stage have performed in the past and getting their approximation of it. That's what you'd expect from kids because a really good actor will draw from their own experience and their own pain. They'll find a way to tie that strength of emotion to the fictional scenario they're in. Kids can be entirely forgiven for not having experienced that sort of stuff yet. Alice Daynard, who has clearly never acted in her life, just launches into this intensely real, incredibly naturalistic delivery of an incredibly worried wife, acting like a grown-up woman who's worried that her husband might be harmed with this amazing delivery coming out of Elle Fanning, sister of Dakota, who, so, you know, obviously she's been around actors for a while now, but the way it's shot, all the other kids kind of, like, their jaws slowly drop, including her co-star, and they're just kind of left speechless. And this is just the rehearsal. The actual filming takes place when the train's going past just prior to it crashing. But there's this kind of magic as they're all just kind of left, and she's like, was that any good? And... Again, her co-star kind of wipes a tear out of his eye because she said, I just love you so much, so seriously that he believes it. Mm -hmm. And he's never heard anyone but his mom say that to him. And even then, it's just like, ah, ma. So it's just this stirring moment. Mm. We're going to shoot on Alice's side first. Okay, Preston, so a few seconds after I say action, I want you to walk over the payphone. You know, make the place look like it's busy. Hello? Hello? I know what that looks like. Asshole! Could you stop blowing shit up for two seconds and deal with the camera? God, sorry, man. Okay, you guys, let's rehearse this. But remember, save the real performance for when we're filming. Here we go. Positions and action! So, I'm gonna stay here and investigate. I think it'd be safer if you left town for a couple of days. John, I don't like it. This case, these murders. Well, what am I supposed to do? Go to Michigan with you? Mackinac Island's beautiful this time of year. Sweetheart, this is my job. The dead coming back to life? I think you're in danger. I have no... I have no choice. You do have a choice. We all do. John, I've never asked you to stop. I've never asked you to give up or walk away. But I'm asking you now. Please, for me, don't go. Don't leave me. I need to know this isn't the last time I'm going to see you. I just love you so much. Love you too. Was that good? Uh, uh, y- yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that, was, that was great. And again, I've never seen that anywhere else. Super 8 is special for that. I will say this though, uh, Alice Daynard is the daughter of an alcoholic. She has been acting every day of her life since she first worked out daddy's in a bad mood because he's got a hangover. Yeah. 
And that's a layer that I don't even know if Abrams had considered. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, she's uh, the reason she's so mature is because she's had to deal with a hell of a lot far too early. Her mother left some time ago, not so long ago that the wounds have begun to heal yet. And her father, as I've said, is deeply depressed and drinks mm-hmm. repeatedly. They play it very carefully to make him not obviously physically abusive to her. It could have been so easy to slip into the, some days I worry about you, Bevy, just fucking creep city. But Ron Eldard plays it more crushed than aggressive. Mm, Yeah. So you're going to find, as we talk, that we focus almost entirely on the drama side of it and actually very little on the sci-fi side of it. Because frankly, the sci-fi side, it's not disposable, but we've seen it done in so many other places. And I feel like um, E.T. and Stranger Things have got this thing both covered and licked in terms of, uh, you know, going in depth into shady government, you know, cruel, It's the experimental backdrop. Stuff. It's, like, uh, it's like Marvel's superhero movies. Mm. The, the superhero element is the backdrop. It's the metaphor through which the drama of the story they're trying to tell is... Explored. As we said way back on our show covering the original Iron Man back in 2012, we would watch a movie about Tony Stark if he didn't put on an Iron Man suit at all. Mm. That's just how great the character is as played by Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. I would watch, if, if this had been entirely drama and had been about Charles making his movie and Joe coming to terms with the death of his mother, it would still be engaging and heartfelt and fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. The Alien provides a... Macrocosm? Metaphor? Loosely. Mm. A a big version of what's going on in Joe and in other people in the film so that we can take those feelings Mm. and kind of blow them up and not like the opposite of look at them under a microscope, look to see what the wider impact of those emotions Mm. are having. The, The alien is destroying the town not through any intention just because it's lost and confused and scared but joe doesn't behave destructively in fact he's like "Mm, i guess you can blow up my model train he's not angry the this that parallel actually comes in um a monster calls where the monster is allegorical for a grieving child's many different emotions and all of them are extremely intense and there's a definite moment of absolute destructiveness but he's been dealing with anger all the time that is exactly what abrams was going for done extremely well and nobody saw it it's not necessarily to this film's massive detriment that the parallel wasn't there sharply i actually feel like a lot of people find that grief disturbing find that level of intensity Mm. frightening if they haven't experienced it before it alienates them if they have it makes them feel terrible potentially i think what it might be the case is that some people feel weirded out when they see that kind of emotional exploration in a sci-fi movie Mm. because a sci-fi movie in their head dude that's our bread and butter i know I know, but to some people, not necessarily our listeners, but to some people, a sci-fi movie is 
uh, is big, pew, fireworks, pew, pew. fun. I, I go here for the escape and the, the release and to not really have to think about things too much. Yeah. And that's fine. There's plenty of sci-fis and, and action movies out there that you can in, engage with if that's the kind of thing that you're looking for. But for me, taking that um, that easily absorbed form of entertainment and using it to bring in something that is powerful and valuable and incredibly heartfelt is that's where the artistry lies for me for in creators who are able to do that mm. so there's a whole bunch of extra stuff after the crash they pull themselves back together uh, they they encounter was it their science teacher at school uh, yes who yeah. uh, was the uh, guy who rammed the train to get it uh, um, uh, derailed because it contained uh, the story goes that it contained an alien that he helped to monitor from when it crashed at Roswell question mark in 1958 and they the government being who they are tortured the shit out of it for some 21 years um, create m- making it furious and angry and desperate to escape i mean 21 years of being tortured would make all of us uh, imagine john rambo in first blood it would break us we would have no comprehension of our own previous life because it would be so far away and, and all we would know would be pain I think a lot of people kind of miss that that twenty one year span about this movie. It's it's easy to look at the uh, aliens' actions and go, well, he eats people and he's terrifying and uh, you know he's he's a thing of rage. Why should we give a shit about him? Uh, he's ET. If the government got their hands on ET and kicked the shit out of him for two decades. Also, if ET was twenty five feet tall. Yeah, and could eat people, mm. and actually was biologically inclined to eat mammals of about our size. Yeah, and the design of the creature. This is something that it hadn't really struck me before. How not designed to engender sympathy. Yeah. Until the very, very... There's something very significant that happens with the creature design towards the end mm. that changes that. But initially, it is designed to look scary. Yeah. It doesn't look like E.T. or Mackin. No, it looks like they, Cloverfield. When they first see the... Side note, people thought this was a sequel to Cloverfield when it was first announced. Yeah, I could believe that. Um, I mean, there is obviously some kind of thematic connection between all of the Cloverfield stories. <laughs> Question mark over that third one, dude. Um, but the the initial real good look at the the creature is when they watch the foot, film footage back, mm-hmm. and they see it escape from the train. The angle and the way its arms are positioned, it looks like a giant spider. I was going to say, yeah, it's like it. Yeah, it's like if you were going to design something to, to scare make people. A, any human look at it and go, nope, 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 nope. That would be it. And apparently there's been a lot of missing dogs because from the sounds of it, the dogs of this neighbourhood have all taken one sniff of this thing and gone, nope, I am out. Sorry. I'm done. I will see you next December. <laughs> I am now a feral dog. Is it not eating the dogs? Probably. Because it's it needs to eat something and there are no yeah. cows in Ohio. Question mark. 
But yeah, they, uh, the kids carry on with their film. There's that uh, little bit where Joe has to act and says, I wouldn't tell you all this except for when we worked together in Vietnam. And again, just these wonderful little moments of, of, uh, of this sort of goofy, like, well, that'll do, that'll work. That's mint from, from Charles. Just his low bar of expectation and what they end up producing at the end. Well, we'll talk about it now, actually, because I don't want to distract from the uh, finale. The, the case, uh, which is uh, the little Easter egg that plays basically over the uh, mid-credits after the uh, uh, initial... Don't Bring Me Down by the Electric Light Orchestra, who I really need to get into. They rock. I've loved them since Mr. Blue Sky. First from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, then from The Magic Roundabout, then from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And actually, now that I think about it, I've loved them since Living Thing in Boogie Nights. Yeah, the case, their little, uh, their movie is incredibly charming. It's got that kind of Sam Raimi sensibility uh, of, of like you know, taking particular glee in killing zombies in a uh, overly showy and gory way. The one kid in the uh, group, Carrie, keeps getting dressed as this same friggin' zombie, just with ping pong ball eyes. And he has this ferociousness about him and gets killed three times. This is where my friend was attacked. By who? I've never seen him before. He looked pale, crazy. He bit my friend. Then what happened? He was dead. And then? He got up and walked away. How did you know? Anything left behind? Yes, this fell out of the pocket, of the attacker's pocket. Thank you. Hello, Mr. President. I'm Detective Pathway. I'm here to discuss some urgent matters regarding your chemical... Factory. Are you referring to the recent incidents? Yes, I believe I am. Tell the chairman I'll call him back. You have three minutes. You want to tell me about those employees? I was sorry to hear of their unfortunate accident. That was no accident. Did you see the bites on their neck? Are you suggesting some connection between my chemical company and those... Those, those were zombie attacks. Romero Chemical has nothing to do with any such thing. Then what happens in Building 47? You wouldn't mind if I took a look around, would you? Of course not. Good day to you, Mr. President. Good day, Detective. He knows. Give these kids a budget, see what they can do. Hmm. Joe's father tells him to stay away from Alice Daynard and seems to have the, a real problem with her father, whom at the very beginning he turfs out of the uh, funeral uh, immediately after he appears and seems to be arresting him on uh, uh, suspicion of it doesn't matter. You know, there's an unspoken deep resentment there, and he transfers it to Alice, which actually does bring an anger out of Joe. You're not friends with Alice Daynard. When I say no, I don't mean maybe. I don't mean yes, I mean no. I've known Louis Daynard for a lot of years. He's been nothing but trouble. Your mother used to say he's not such a bad guy. He just needs a chance that he was sad. Well, I tried to be good to him, and I can't, not anymore. I will not allow him or his daughter in this house. I will not allow you to spend time with her doing projects or whatever it is that you do. That's it. I hope we're clear on that. We're not clear. What'd you say? 
we're not clear. You and I aren't clear about anything. We couldn't be less clear. Joseph, just because Mom died doesn't mean that you know anything about me. You don't. You don't know anything about Alice either. She's kind. I'm not gonna have this discussion. Right She's now. nice to me. I don't care what she is. Her father is an irresponsible, selfish son of a bitch. You listen to me. I've got twelve thousand people in this town who are scared out of their mind. They've got one person to rely on. It used to be someone else, but now it's just me. There's a stolen moment where she um, sneaks in through his window and uh, he, in a deleted scene, he was watching Super 8 footage of his mother. And I, 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 I loved watching the deleted scenes because all of them don't make the film better. It's like they're expertly removed just to not give Joe and Alice too much time together because it's like, you know, would you two stop making kissy face and actually talk about it? Anyway, you know, there's this, this lovely scene of like, he's trying to teach her vaguely how to be a zombie as he makes her up to be one. And she's again, frighteningly good at being a zombie, just lapsing straight into it. And then like she goes to bite his neck and there's a tiny little red mark from her um, bloody lip makeup uh, on his neck, which they were going to uh, digitally remove because that wasn't necessarily intentional. And Steve was like, no, 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 leave it there because it just, it allows Joe feeling kind of nervous to just sort of like, there was that just that moment of intimacy there. And it's like, well, that was not what I expected at all. Oh, <laughs> don't know how to feel about this. I did wonder if it was accidental because the way Joel Courtney flushes when yeah. that happens seems a little bit too authentic to be <laughs> this was in the script okay joel we want you now to blush mm. it's it's a it's a wonderful little sort of um emergent moment uh, and by relief we are made to understand just seeing her in the uh, super 8 footage that elizabeth was a special woman a steel worker who just had this quiet dignified kind of love just flowing out of her it was it, it just accentuates the moment and then as we're watching this footage of her with her infant joe and alice goes through her revelation i'll play the scene now it's absolutely heartbreaking it's, it's so weird watching her like this like she's still here. She used to look at me this way, like, like really look. And I just knew I was there, that I existed. drink that morning my dad he missed his shift <laughs> your mom took it for him the day of the accident He, 
he wishes... I know he wishes it was him instead of her. your dad. Through no fault of either of them, Alice became tethered to Joe, effectively. Like, she felt responsible for ruining his life. Which, again, gives us perspective on this relationship she has with her father and, and seemingly I don't think he was always like this from how they treat each other at the end and her frustration and shame seems much too raw and too recent and almost like it was growing for a while as after the mother had left um but just exploded during this particular moment of tragedy that his responsibility for that moment was so weirdly removed simply down to he should have been in that place but he didn't cause that accident he didn't make it happen he didn't kill her Mm. and he's taken on an incredible amount of guilt for it and she's taken on an incredible amount of guilt for it and Jackson's taken on an incredible amount of resentment and just despair over what seems to be this cruel twist of fate. Yeah. And Joe's the one at the end of this particular domino rally just feeling like this was unfair, but ultimately it is what it is and we have to move forward. Yeah. It is a tricky sequence of events to piece together because it's it's never made clear whether Alice's mother left because Lewis drank or whether Lewis drank because Alice's mother left. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it matters that much in terms of the playing out of this particular story. But it does inform on the responsibility that, as you say, she bears for it. Because there is there is one line that she says, and there's a particular thing about the way she delivers it when she's talking about the accident and the fact that her father was supposed to be working that day she says he wishes and then pauses and then says I know he wishes that it had been him instead of her she's had to extrapolate that herself exactly this is is obviously not something that Lewis has said out loud it might even be something that Lewis hasn't thought at all but this is just how Alice feels. She's the one bearing a great deal of this guilt openly, where her father's dealing with it in a very, uh, or what he thinks is a very undercover way. <laughs> but he's, I, I love the way that Lewis is set up visually. The moment when he turns up at the funeral, this is going all the way back to the beginning, but again, it's another one of those threads of how Abrams visually tells stories. The whole town is, it's not exactly that everybody is identical. It's not Stepford or anything like that. But everybody's got fairly low-key cars, station wagons and, you know, browns and greens and blacks and blues. Nothing particularly eye-catching. And then Lewis rocks up drunk 
in this bright yellow yellow bumblebee looking bumblebee type sports car mm. and it just it says so much about him and possibly hints at some of the reasons why he might feel somewhat out of place in this town it feels like he wanted to be something then his life went all wrong and then it collapsed mm. and he's been just spinning since then and Alice is way too young to basically perform all the support duties of a wife. And this, I mean, the, the whole film feels partly Spielbergian, but almost it's so dark and specific at times that it feels more Stephen King as well. There is a definite Stephen King feel to this. Mm-hmm. I've, it, it seems more low key and understated relative to the we're going to use the goddamn font of Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the direct adaptation of it. But it was there to begin with in this. Mm. It's it's definitely in there. It's, uh, you could point to this and say it's very similar to The Goonies, but it's it's really not. Like, it's it's a bunch of a bunch of kids running around, like, looking for treasure in The uh, Goonies. But it's, it's clear they're of a, a younger age group, and they're not thinking along the same lines as, uh, as these kids. Mm-hmm. It's noteworthy that the first thing JJ said about the bunch of kids he got working for him, he just said, they're very kind, you know, wonderful kids. The first thing he picked to say about them was that they were kind. I understand why people hate this man. They think he's a great big fraud and a charlatan and that he strings us along with his mystery box and then delivers fuck all. I hear he's too popular. I hear he's too flashy. I hear he shakes the camera too much. I hear he uses lens flares all the time. I hear he's a nothing hack wannabe Steven Spielberg. I disagree. I think he's got many things where it counts. And the fact that he prized kindness there says a lot about why his work connects with me. You were talking about Stranger Things. Yeah. I think one of the key differences between uh, this and Stranger Things and The Goonies, and it's in what you said about the children in that are more... They seem younger. They are more naive. They have a problem that is going on in their town and they take it upon themselves to go and fix it. Mm. That's not what these kids are doing. They are desperately trying to uh, bat away the the dangers and outcomes of a mess they had nothing to do with in much the same way that their parents are. Mm. Mm. They're almost more like hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is ironic. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Little Mikey there's less like Samwise than uh, than Joe here. He's not even even Pippin. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even Pippin. <laughs> Anyway, so um, around about this point, uh, after Alice and her father uh, have a a shouting match, which does not resolve cleanly, uh, she uh, goes cycling off and he chases after her drunk in his car, which is like, this can't end well. And luckily, rather than absolute tragedy occurring, she gets snatched away by a monster before it can happen. (laughs) And And he crashes into a parked car. It's like, oh. Alice now takes no further part in proceedings, and that is to this film's detriment, because she's maybe the best character. 
Yeah. No, maybe about it, actually. She and she and Joe are absolutely fantastic. And they're surrounded by some really excellent characters, so that's not saying... That's not for nothing. They, they, you know, they had to fight for that. And uh, then there's a lot of sort of running back and forwards and screaming and going to here and going to there, and the military have taken over the town, and there's a, a loud, angry town meeting, and um, it's... There's a the, the the evil dude who was in the Truman Show is like the the army general who like orders their teacher to be killed and you pointed out that he actually rather than killing him himself uh, because uh, this teacher is a teacher of color and the only person of color in the whole film he orders another soldier the only other person of color in this entirely white ass film. <laughs> To kill him, and it's like, okay, cool. I don't know if he actually uh, performs the lethal injection, but he certainly mm. has to stand there and keep an eye on him while it happens, and it's very uncomfortable but scene. One thing I did like on uh, JJ's commentary was uh, he mentioned he had just seen a, a little movie called Attack the Block, and this is 2011 when he's saying this, and that just happened to star a young John Boyega. It's lovely hearing the next piece of the puzzle coming along. The guy has a bright future ahead of him. Mr. Woodward uh, mentions he is in me as I am in him, which is the first clue to this alien creature being something more than just this rampaging beast. Uh, the kids get caught in a bus, the alien attacks, then the bad guys get killed, then the kids run away. Then, because there had to be one big action sequence for it to feel like a sort of a, a, a 50s B-movie where sort of uh, the artillery are being fired at the big monster, rather than it actually being the monster going on the rampage like Cloverfield, just smashing through the town, it's this weird kind of the monster like clicks its fingers and goes pew pew pew, and then all the fucking artillery starts going off at once. So the kids are running through this kind of automatic war zone that the army have brought along. It's kind of like if the Iron Giant could just go invisible and make all of those uh, the military that sort of invade the. Uh, there is a lot of Iron Giant in this, mm, by the way. Yes, it's not this. I, don't, I would say it's not the same caliber as the Iron Giant. The Iron Giant is goes about itself far more smoothly in terms of what its story pieces do to fall into place. I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that the Iron Giant is trying to tell a much bigger story. Yeah. This is a very small, personal hmm. experience. It's not an anti-nuclear parable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all the the army are like going pew 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 and firing off, and the other all the kids are screaming. There's this one kid uh, who keeps puking and screaming. Uh, it, he's kind of the, they they don't develop uh, the uh, other friends beyond Charles and a little bit of Carrie, but uh, they don't get enough screen time. And ultimately, it's a it's a two hour movie. They didn't develop the uh, kids in ET either. I suppose this is uh, equivalent to them trying to rescue E.T. at this moment. Only it's it's got less of that... Da, 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 and more like, this thing's going to kill us! Um, so, uh, Joe and Carrie, the uh, little pyromaniac, because uh, uh, Charles takes a kind of generous back seat at this point. Um, and I theorised it was because Charles is so intense that it would almost distract from the connection between Joe and Alice and you said 
that it's so that Joe can step up and be a leader because when Charles is around, he defers to Charles. And why then said Charles in charge? Because it's the most obvious pun. Yes. Anyway, <clears throat> oh, that Charchi ended up a complete wrong and didn't he? Yeah. That's a Charchi. <laughs> oh, there is also a key moment where uh, Jackson, um, the uh, Joe's father, and Lewis, Alice's father, are driving in a car together. And it's a really short conversation. But it's, it's a really short guys conversation, guys who are emotionally stunted and can't actually comprehend or articulate their feelings. It's enough for them. And that is simply Lewis apologizing to the widower of the woman he feels responsible for and Jackson just biting back his anger and just saying it was an accident and actually feeling that that is the truth that... He's been angry so long, specifically directing it at Lewis, and he just wants someone to blame. I think there's also an element there of him wanting Lewis to acknowledge that... He played a part. He played a part in it, not necessarily so that he can hold it, that Jack can hold it against him, just to have that recognised. And it's interesting that up until this point, he hasn't given Lewis the opportunity to say that because on some level, he didn't want to hear it because he wanted to hang on to the anger and he wanted to hang on to the blame. And he knew on some level that if Lewis acknowledged his part in it, he wouldn't be able to hang on to that blame anymore. Because sometimes when you're deeply, deeply depressed, you hang on to anger because at least it keeps you going. Yeah. It's anger can be a fuel, ultimately. It, its purpose is to drive us forward and to keep us moving and to give us the fire necessary to do the things which are hard but necessary to protect ourselves, to protect other people. That's what anger is there for. But sometimes it's possible to get too dependent on it and get to the point where it is the only thing that keeps you getting up in the morning. So Joe and uh, Kerry... Uh, find a uh, a hole that uh, Joe had seen being dug under a garage um, behind its glass windows the night before. And he's figured out this is where the creature's hiding. It's burrowed itself underground. It was designed with these massive, like, shovel-like hands that it could, uh, you know, hollow all this stuff out. No idea where all the earth went. It seems to have found the back cave down there. <laughs> but it's been building something. And uh, there's, like, as soon as you start going down there and twisting around it, you're beginning to question what you know about this thing. It's already shockingly snatched away things like the sheriff and some poor guy, Schmo, who, uh, you know, just works part-time at a gas station and you know a woman who wears rollers and the, uh, you know apparently it eats dogs and it might eat people and it seems to be hanging um, people up for snacks for later but possibly a lot of them are still alive but unconscious it's all a big question mark and they don't really go into it too much which again makes it feel like uh, people it might not have engendered that much sympathy for the alien itself and they get Alice back 
and run around with her screaming, and it's it, it's kids in underground tunnels going, we gotta go this way, we gotta go that way, la, la. But eventually the alien uh, finds them. I theorized when it starts snatching away uh, other humans, it's not actually like snapping them in half like a twig or eating them. It's just getting them out of it, its way, and that after the film finishes, those people kind of pick themselves up and go... Okay, I'm alive. Mm. But we never see that, so it feels like it's just killing people. There is another possibility, and this has only just occurred to me, and if this was the case, this was something that really needed to be made a little bit more clear. Well, we said about visual storytelling. Yeah. Sometimes he's not the best. This is something that would be very difficult to express in a purely visual way, but Woodward says, I am in him as he is in me. And Alice, at one point, makes it clear that she has had some kind of mental connection with the creature. She knows what it wants, what it's looking for. It may have been taking those people to connect with them to get information, to know where in the city it can go to get these things that it needs. Mm. And then once it's got the what it needs from each individual person, doesn't know what else to do with them, just puts them to one side. And hence why, at the end, they're all kind of waking up like they've just come out of some kind of slumber. Yeah, they're bewildered rather than... Uh... Traumatized. Exactly, yeah. but it, um, And also that then enhances the theory that it's looking for connection. It's just that it can't connect with people the same way that it would be able to connect with its own kind. We only see it directly kill soldiers who are, who attacking, are attacking it. it yeah. And specifically the attitude. one soldier who seems to have decided to torture it to death. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So... Uh, yeah, if you um, if you go back and rewatch it, it it might be that there are rationales you can cling to, which uh, actually paint a better picture of this alien. But when it finally confronts Joe and lifts him up in the behind the scenes uh, materials, uh, Bruce Greenwood—that's Pike in the uh, Star Trek films. Your father was captain of a starship for twelve minutes. He saved 800 lives, including your mother's and yours. I dare you to do better. Played the performance capture because they needed, they deliberately wanted this thing to be, to have a humanity to it, to have a performance behind it. So it's the same kind of way that Benedict Cumberbatch played Smaug, where you're like, okay, so he, he is there and what were they going on for this? But... It really comes down to how the animators were able to incorporate these tiny little nuances of facial movements Mm. uh, that a human is able to produce, which, when you capture them in the right way, you can actually see something of humanity behind something far more abstract like this, Mm. more so than... Sometimes with things like image movers, digitals, weird potato-faced people who don't have all of those little facial muscles that you're required to emote that way. Mm. Well, if you compare it to, uh, I would say, the the more human-like equivalents would be like Mark Ruffalo doing the performance capture for the Hulk or uh, Andy Serkis doing the performance capture for Caesar. Or... Terry Notary performing Buck in Call of the Wild. Uh, now, Buck, you see, I would put in, in the, the first category, because the ones I'm talking about there, Caesar and, and Hulk, mm. you're working with a basically, basically a human, human face, face. As opposed you to a dog muzzle. You can map those movements. You might need to broaden them. You might need to put them in slightly different places, mm. but it's the same basic structure. A dog, a dragon, and a 
weird alien thing that appears to be made of the inside of a tree mm. are not the same. And, and if you're going to translate human movements into something that you can still see, as you say, that, that humanity in there, yeah. it's going to be a much more complex procedure. And I think they did such a wonderful job with it. Mm. Not wonderful the, enough to win everybody's hearts, no. but for some people it no. worked. Um, but uh, speaking of the, the sheriff getting grabbed, by mm. the way, that is the uh, the inciting incident for what is one of my favourite lines in the film, mm -hmm. which is when... Because Jackson is the sheriff's deputy mm -hmm. and the absence of this guy, who, to be fair, was not showing much interest in really getting involved in, in what was going on. Jackson's been doing his own investigating behind the scenes because the, his boss is not really following up on anything and just keeps telling him to take a break and go home and talk to his son, which is good advice, but... He, when the sheriff himself disappears, Jack ends up having this fallout with Joe and mapping his own emotional situation onto Joe's and pointing out that the rest of the town is now relying on him to sort all this shit out because they don't have their sheriff anymore. And the way he sums it up is, there's 20,000 people in this town they, and they're all depending on me. There used to be somebody else, and now it's just me. And he's talking about Elizabeth as well, and there's just this moment where they just look at each other, and nothing else needs to be said. They both know that's what he means. That Joe is now relying just on him because Elizabeth isn't there anymore. Sorry. Again, it's broad strokes, and I do understand why some people don't like that kind of very over-emotional um, picture being painted in their movies, and particularly not in their sci-fi movies, but dear God, this is my meat and drink. Mm. <laughs> I live for that kind of thing. Unlike E.T., where we spend the whole movie getting to know the alien, or the Iron Giant, where we spend the whole movie, we start off, in both cases, a little bit afraid of it, mm. less so with E.T. Uh, but well, yeah, because E.T. is only that big. I don't know. A lot of kids, when they first see E.T., they see scared them He's shitless. fine, up until the point where his neck grows. Mm. Also, I think it's uh, um, that the brother's line about... I think the coyote came back, Ma. Just the darkness in that line. <laughs> Shit. What did the coyote do to you? We never saw Lady Clock again. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't get that time with the alien. We get now at this exact moment. So if you take what we've learned about it, it has had 21 years of waking up in a shipwreck and being... Punched in the face by the 1958 equivalent of Will Smith, who said, Welcome to Earth! And then continued to punch him for 21 more years. As far as this thing was concerned, we are evil as a species. The only one that made him this creature... I don't even know... I can't even say him. It. It? I suppose we'll go with it. The only connection that gave it pause for thought was Mr. Woodward, who was one of the scientists working on the project, who communicated and was basically um, Sally Hawkins in uh, sh Shape of Water. Yeah. Was open to it in a way that the other soldiers and, and scientists weren't. Yeah. Uh, so now it's free in the town and in this 
couple of days that it has, it has to realign what it feels about human beings. What are you? You know, are you food? Are you all as savage and evil? And because it's extremely empathic, it senses all kinds of fear and anger in all of these people that it snatches, especially Which because it of, the, have of the how it snatches them. And so it's not sure. Like, if it was just a savage carnivore that was just feeding on people, that layer of his, of its, would be an abattoir. It would be... The Alien Queen's Nest. The Alien Queen's Nest by way of Tobey Hooper. Ah. <laughs> the Ohio Ch- uh, Alien Massacre. Mm. But it's not. It's leaving them alive and uh, in what appears to be some kind of stasis trance. Mm. And when it grabs Joe, he says... And very specifically at this point, these paranoid-looking eyes open a second layer of lids in this um, strange three-lidded layout to reveal very human eyes. And they very deliberately took the um, uh, real-life eyes of uh, the woman playing Elizabeth, uh, Joe's mother, to look into. She used to look at me this way. Like, really look. And I just knew I was there. That I existed. Evoking that sense of seeing someone. Mm. For something to have a, a protective eyelid that it never opens suggests that it is able to see something when it's up on the surface. Enough for it to be able to get around to where it needs to get. But there's a reason why it's not opening that that membrane up. It doesn't need to because it can see through it. But also possibly light too bright, too harsh. When it opens its eyes, it's underground. And that speaks of of, of having to keep a protective layer between itself and... The beings that it interacts with maybe opening up that layer is what enables that mental connection that it had with Woodward and has seems to have had a little bit with Alice but until this point hasn't felt safe enough to open up and fully connect with another person which means its natural state is probably to keep those eyes open and it's had to have them tightly shut for most of 21 years to protect itself as it was being harmed every single day. Yeah. And then the finale, the creature retreats and they are, they crawl out of the hole, they wander into the street and there's been this whole thing about these tiny little magic cubes 
little white Rubik-y things, um, which were its craft to begin with and ha- has somehow divided itself. And it's this sort of mimetic polyalloy me- metal uh, substance which, uh, you know, can divide and separate and then reform depending on what it's required to do. But it's been harvesting metal from around the town and it's made itself kind of a jury-rigged spacecraft like a whole bunch of other movies from the 80s. I mean, Explorers did that. The way it looks to me at the end, and I thought that, that he was taking all of this, sorry, it was taking all of this metal stuff to make the, the ship itself. But the way it looks at the end, I believe the cubes make the ship. Mm. The metal is what it's gathered to use as a uh, an ignition source. Yeah. It's, it's like stacking up a load of wood underneath a, a rocket to yeah. make it... A lot of it's left behind, basically. Yeah, it what it needed to, was the ship. Yeah, when when that kind of... There's a huge globe of metal things that are all magnetised together immediately underneath the ship. And when the ship takes off, it kind of consumes itself and falls into water. Mm. And this is where you get a fusion of um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, if you've heard our quick review, left us very cold because it's Steven Spielberg asking... Why did Daddy leave? And concluding, it must have been aliens. That's the only thing interesting enough to make him leave. Mm. And then E.T., where he kind of rejoins that question and says, Daddy's gone, but we're going to be okay. And the principle of accepting that emotionally forms the apex of this moment. It's, It's what the whole film's been about. And because Joe can let go, everybody else around him who has been affected by this can take that as their cue to start moving on with their life, to unfreeze mm. from this tangle that they've gotten themselves into. Yeah. And that's it's reflected on another layer as well. Obviously, Joe is the one who is letting go of the locket, which represents his mother and his love for her, which represents the emotional guidance that he shared with the creature that you can still live even when things hurt you said about the the metal that the creatures accrued for its uh, its blast into space it's just steel but what is lillian what is it built on the steelworks that's the most important thing to the whole town that is what they have and they okay maybe not willingly <laughs> or even knowingly when it was being gathered, but that's what they've given up to enable this creature to go home. This thing that represents what is most important to them. Because the other thing is as well, the the steelworks being the number one employer in the town, the, the heart of it, the thing that they all depend on for their, their livelihood and their everyday existence... The fact that that sign at the beginning says it's employee owned as well. So it's not just that it's a a corporation that came into the town and they're all getting handouts from it. This is them. This is them as a collective. And how much pain must it have caused everybody there when, as you say, they'd gone all this time in in a dangerous industry without anybody being hurt. And then they lost the deputy's wife because there was an accident. It may not pain everybody as much as it does Joe. It may not pain everybody as much as it does Jackson, but they feel it. Every time they go to work, they're going to feel it. 
And so, yes, they do need to let go too. My entire book series, you could argue, has been around coping with grief and living with grief. And it became painfully relevant this year or this past year. Ultimately, grieving is coming to terms with an accepted new reality where your life that is not turning out the way you thought it was must be forcefully readjusted. It just, it was so concentrated, this sense of, because we couldn't avoid it anymore. We couldn't, we couldn't avoid having to change our plans. Everybody couldn't avoid having to change our plans as the world turned and went down a completely different route that a lot of us had suspected might happen in some form or another, but a lot of us, the majority of us, I think, were not prepared for. And it hit us violently and sickeningly. So we're all grieving in some capacity, which is why I feel like movies like this and stories like this are so vital. I feel like without those kinds of stories, without those kinds of experiences that we can vicariously live through, we would be less prepared to deal with the true darkness that we get handed. So I'm grateful for them. This point in Super 8 for me is, and I've heard this uh, phrase uh, used over the past couple of years, and I don't usually apply it to anything, um, and I don't think it necessarily applies to the director on the whole, but this moment, in terms of how effective it is, is God-tier filmmaking for me. Because of its simplicity, because of the simple symbolism that's going on here, the alchemy at work, First off, the two kids that we've invested in, Joe and Alice, see their two fathers, these stalled parents who stopped working a while back and have ceased to, uh, to, to be to able function to as function as parents, come back and they've already made their conclusions as fathers. And both of them rejoin their kids with barely a word to excuse or to explain what's gone on the the only thing that is said is by kyle chandler when he just says to joe i've got you simple words that make joe feel like he is not going to be cast out by this man that the, the the anxiety of a baseball camp and just the estrangement between the two of them this can be healed i think the fact that you don't see them hold each other in the rest of the film makes that such a solid moment and and as you say the I've got you this is Jack in his own way it's not the same as how Elizabeth did it but he is reminding Joe that he exists and then all the available metal in, in the near vicinity comes flying towards the water tower where the spaceship is beginning to take off and it's using it for ignition and it's just Joe's locket pulls up and just starts insistently but not violently pulling towards this departing craft flipping open to reveal Elizabeth and 
baby gel, which we hadn't seen until this point. And this was the thing that they recovered from her, and it, the, the language used about around that is very sparing. But it's something Joe's been clinging to. He's not been able to separate the traumatic moment of separation from the person herself. And the locket symbolizes that tight, tight grip. And this scene would be nowhere near as god-tier without the music of Michael Giacchino, who, to me, is the modern-day John Williams' successor and has made me well up as many times as Williams already in his shorter career so far. The rising sense of this is right, this is good, this is healthy. You can let go. this spacecraft taking off, this moment of wonder, this... It's lovely that um, Charles gets to see it as well, because it feels like, because he stepped out of the uh, film, that was something that would have meant a lot to him. Mm. Meanwhile, the stoner is asleep in the car, because drugs are bad, kids. <laughs> you miss great they make, things. You miss great things, yeah. <laughs> And then it's just crystallised. The ship is going home, and as Joe and Alice are now close to their fathers again, they can finally all feel home. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 supporters get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Bailly, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Yongius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. 
And that is all from us on Spielberg for the time being. Again, we await West Side Story when this season will continue on as long as he graces us with his films. JJ will also be returning too. We've covered Star Trek and Into Darkness and The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker. But I've been meaning to cover our favourite Mission Impossible for a long while now, so maybe we'll do that this year. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.